God, I pray that would be our heart's cry. God, that we are thirsty for more of you. We are hungry for more of you. I pray that our desire for you would never stop. We would never be satisfied. Um, I pray you'd speak to us during this time, God. You speak through Michael, through your scripture, uh, into our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning and welcome again to Christ Community Church. It is a joy to see each and every one of you on this beautiful morning. Pray that our time together would be encouraging and challenging, challenging to each of us. A couple of things. Uh, next Sunday, we are going to have a covered dish potluck after church. If you're aware, we've rearranged some stuff, so plugs near tables are limited. So if we try something different, if we bring... Um, Finger foods, cold stuff, sandwiches. We're going to try that and see if that works a little easier because said where we've couches are where all our plugs are. So if we'll we'll try that and we'll still enjoy good food in each other's company. So next Sunday, um, bring something to share. Stay afterwards. We'll eat together and enjoy some fellowship. Uh, today after church, there are several families that are going. Uh, to Cleveland to see Gungor in concert. There are some they're going to meet at the Okoe Olympic Center at 445 with a picnic. Uh, if you're wimpy like me and think that might be a little cold with the wind, then you're welcome to... Oh, we haven't decided what we're going to do. I might try to brave it, pretend like I'm actually acclimated to the weather around here. We'll see. Uh, but the concert starts at 730. 7.30. And it's at Lee University. What's the name of the building? I can't remember. The university. The university. Their auditorium. Look for the crowd. Or you could probably go online and find it, I'm sure. It's a person's last name. It's a band. Yep, that's it. We are in the middle of a series we have been talking about how we are not to think outside of the box. That box being the centrality of the gospel. That if we get away from that, if we try to construct our lives with anything else, then we miss out on numerous wonderful promises. We miss out on life, really. We, we build a life... Whatever that happens to be made of, we've put all kind of words on these boxes, but they're just blank today because we all come from different places, different experiences, different ways that we try to build a life that is different from the clarity, the centrality, the brightness, the beauty of the gospel. And so we are in the middle of a series in Colossians, and this morning we're going to shift gears just a little bit. But you will hear that message again from Paul over and over again, not in those words, but don't think outside the box. Don't get your mind off of Christ. Well, this morning we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, Paul's going to begin to talk about his own ministry. And to be quite honest, sometimes I go, okay, I don't have to read as carefully now. He's talking about him. That really has nothing to do with me because Paul was in the first century and I'm in the 21st century. And Paul lived in Palestine and Asia Minor and I live in Western North Carolina. And he was an apostle and did all kinds of miracles and I'm just me. So I can take a deep breath and I can think about how the Rangers are beating everybody badly 
lately, Texas Rangers baseball. Uh, or I can think about the concert this afternoon, or I can think about maybe a nap between here. You know, I can, I can think about all kind of things, but I can relax because Paul's talking about himself. He's not talking about me. Well, that's right. He's, he's not talking about me, and he's not talking about you. And I'm not Paul, and you're not Paul, and that's a very good thing. Because we don't need any more Pauls running around, and we don't need any more of me running around. We don't need any more of you running around. We just need one of you. And that's important. And we're going to see why that's important this morning. And we're going to see why it's important for you to pay attention to what Paul is talking about. At the end of chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 24, if you want to turn there. He ends the last section by talking about that he was made a minister of the gospel. And so that's the first thing I want to talk about this morning is, um, is what is a minister. Now that word, most of your translations may say, I was made a minister, but that word really is the word for servant. And in our day and age, we've taken that word minister and we've put a, a connotation on it that didn't belong back in the first century. Granted, Paul used that term a small number of times in a technical way for the church office of deacon. That was someone who was part of a local body who served and assisted in various ways. But Paul was not that. He was not part of the local body in Colossae or in Ephesians or anywhere else. And he uses that term a lot. I was a minister of the gospel, a minister of Christ. What that really means is he's a servant. Uh, he's someone who has been given a task and his goal is to fulfill that task. So you can't think of that when we read this as, oh, Paul's talking about something that I'm not. Because he actually is. Before we began this series, we did a, I did a one message on Matthew chapter 20. Let me remind you what we talked about in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He told the disciples that he was about to die, going to be killed, he was going to be tortured, crucified. James and John said, hey, Jesus, apparently not hearing what he just said, not offering any comfort. Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit on the right and the left hand side. And being much nicer than I would have probably been if I knew I was about to die and I told someone and they didn't seem to care. <laughs> he reminded them that their task was not to act like the Gentiles and to try to be master and lord and to take authority. Their job was to be a servant. Same word. Their job was to be humble and, and do whatever was required. And that's how Paul's using, that's how most of the New Testament writers that use that word, when they're not talking about a specific office, are using that word. It's simply that attitude of someone who follows Christ. I'm a servant. I'm a minister in the sense of I'm ministering to other people with the gifts and the talents that I have where I am. I'm serving. And so we really can't look at this and take a deep breath and go, okay, it doesn't matter. 
when you want to be good at something, you tend to look at and model the people that are good at that. If you wanted to be good at sports, at a certain particular sport, then what are the people who are really good at that? What do they do? What are their habits? What are their practice patterns like? If you wanted to be a good writer, you'd read good literature. You'd read good writers. What do they do? How do they work their craft? If you want to be a good musician, you notice what good musicians do. How do they practice? How do they spend their time? What equipment do they have? And if we want to do what Jesus asked us to do, to be servants, we should look at someone who does that well, and Paul does that well. You read through the New Testament, you read through the book of Acts, and you see him giving of himself, serving others constantly, not thinking about himself. So we look at this and we don't get to take a deep breath and go, okay, he's talking about himself, I'll think about something else. We need to think very carefully about what he says his life consists of as a servant, what that looks like. And over the course of the next two Sundays, we're going to look at this passage from chapter, from verse 24 to the end. And we're going to see four things over the next two Sundays, two this Sunday, two next Sunday. What is the price of being a servant? What is the proclamation that a servant has? What's the purpose for being a servant? And finally, where do we get the power to be a servant? So two this week, two next week. One final reminder, Jesus in John chapter 13, John says, knowing that all things were his, basically, knowing that the end had come, knowing that he'd kind of wrapped everything up, he, he got up from supper and he took a towel and girded it around his waist and he washed the disciples' feet. And he says, after he finished, you need to follow that example. And he actually used a different word for servant. He used actually the word for slave. You need to follow that example of being a slave. And that's someone who really doesn't have control over what they do. Most of the time, Jesus used the word servant. Paul uses the word servant. That's someone who kind of voluntarily is willing to do what's asked of them. So this morning as we, as we look at that, um, I want you to think deeply about are you a servant? Are you following yourself? Are you having others serve you or are you willing to serve others? So let's read beginning in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which had been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been made manifest to his saints to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we look at Your Word this morning, I pray that You would speak to our hearts that you'd speak to our minds, that you'd speak to our wills. 
And God, I pray that through the power of your spirit, we would rejoice and desire to be obedient to all that you ask us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So first of all, what is the price of being a servant? Well, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. The price of being a servant is that we suffer. We're going to answer two questions. What is the price, which we've said is suffering, and why we would do that? Why is that important? So, it's suffering. Paul was the consummate sufferer. You read through 2 Corinthians, that passage we a little while ago, where he says these light and momentary afflictions. Paul didn't undergo light and momentary afflictions. He was beaten uh, numerous times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. Uh, he was hated and scorned and mocked and eventually killed. He suffered for the gospel. Now, that, what that doesn't mean is, is that suffering is always physical. What it does mean is, is that suffering is a sacrifice. You might suffer by sacrificing your time. You might suffer by sacrificing your money. You might suffer by sacrificing something that's pleasurable to you. But the call of the gospel is always one of suffering. It's always one of denying yourself, sacrificing yourself for the sake of someone else. That's what a servant is. I'm willing to put myself aside for the sake of someone else. Even if that means pain, even if that means difficulty, even if that means hardship, ultimately even if that means death, is, is your life more important than mine? That's the question that a servant should ask. It's, it's suffering. The next question we want to answer is, well, why do I do that? Why is that important to, um, to me as a servant? And I think Paul answers that question. We, did, we need to talk about one odd phrase for a moment. He says, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean by filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? I kind of thought Jesus suffered enough for us. How could there be anything lacking? Well, we've got to read the whole context. He says, he's talking about, uh, he says, Christ is the body, is the church. He's got all that wrapped up together. And so in one sense, he's saying, I'm doing my share of suffering for the church. In other words, if we're his body, and Jesus suffered, if we're his body and he's our head, then we will suffer. The body of Christ is going to suffer if it's really his body. And Paul says, I'm doing my fair share of that. Now, whether he's, being, whether he's exaggerating, whether he really means I'm doing more than my fair share of that, I don't know. He may certainly have felt that way, especially being in prison, writing to a church that was not in prison and, best we can tell, wasn't undergoing persecution at the time. Paul says, I'm, I am taking care of all the suffering... And he rejoiced in that. Maybe because he was glad to do it so they didn't have to. I don't know. But I think there are two reasons he was able to rejoice in that. 
Number one goes back to that passage we read in 2 Corinthians this morning, that these light momentary afflictions were producing for him an eternal weight of glory. He knew that his suffering was leading him towards the hope that was waiting for him in heaven. He knew that his suffering was really light compared to the fact that his mind really was set on Christ, set on the hope of glory. He knew that. But second, I think, and maybe more importantly, when he suffered, he knew that he was identifying with Christ. It allowed him to be closer to Christ. It allowed him to realize that, yes, I'm doing what he's called me to do. My suffering is proof that I'm closer to my Savior. Turn back with me just a... No, wait a minute. Yeah, turn back with me just a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about um, the fact that he has this righteousness that's not from him. And he's rejoicing in that. And he says, That I may know him, in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What Paul wanted to know was the power of the resurrection. I want to know what it's like when death is defeated. I want to know that. I want to know what that power is like when death is finally done away with. He's talking about now. He wants to know that power over sin now. But then he adds something to it that most of us probably don't want to add. The fellowship of his sufferings. Because he knows those go hand in hand. I can't experience victory over death if I'm not willing to die. If my life is so important that I can't give it up, then I really don't understand that victory over death. Do we understand that the resurrection conquered death and the more that I die to self, the more that I really live? That's what Paul's trying to communicate. That's why we can pay the price of being a servant by suffering. Because we... We understand what it's like when Christ went to the cross in, in a small way. We identify with Him when we fellowship in His sufferings. Now, let me just talk about a couple of things that suffering is not. It's not going to look for ways that I can be a martyr. It's not seeking out trouble. There are some people who are always trying to get themselves in trouble so they can say, look how much I'm suffering for Jesus. That's not suffering for Jesus. It's dying to self, not making yourself more important. Suffering is also not those daily trials and tribulations that anybody faces, whether they're Christians or not. Okay? Suffering for Jesus is not a sink full of dirty dishes and a kid in dirty diapers and the appliances have broken and your car doesn't work. That's not suffering for Jesus. That's life. Everybody deals with that, whether they're believers or not. 
So we can't look at our life when bad things happen and go, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. Oh, you live in a sinful world. Suffering is dying to self in some way. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be Christ-like as opposed to somebody else when there's a sink full of dirty dishes and you've got dirty diapers to deal with and your car doesn't work and the appliances break down. You should be Christ-like. You should handle that differently from the world, but that doesn't mean that that is suffering for Jesus. That means you live in America and you have an appliance to break down. It means you have transportation that might not work. Right? Suffering is sacrifice. As Paul said in Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's giving up of ourselves. The problem with that is that living sacrifices often crawl back off the altar. I like myself too much. The second thing that we see is that uh, a servant has a proclamation to make. And there are three questions we're going to answer. We're going to answer why we make the proclamation. We're going to answer uh, what is the proclamation. And we're going to answer how do we do that. So first of all, um, why we make the proclamation. He says in verse 25, Of this I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Two reasons why he can proclaim. Number one, God gave it to him. It's a stewardship. A stewardship is uh, something that someone gives to you to manage. We read in 1 Peter 4.10 that every one of us has been given a gift to manage. Same word, a stewardship. It's not just special people like Paul. All of us have been given a gift to manage. Some spiritual gift, some ability to use in the church for God's glory. We are all stewards of, first of all, God's grace. Are you, how are you managing God's grace? Taking advantage of it? Or are you basking in it, enjoying it, dwelling on it, thinking about it? What about the gifts that He's given you? Your abilities, your skills. Are you using those for yourself or using those for the church? Because Paul says also, he was given this stewardship for, he says, your benefit. That's the Colossians. I was given these skills, these gifts, this ministry, this servanthood, not for me, but for you. And that's the way we need to think. Do we use our gifts, our abilities for other people or for ourselves? Stewardship is not for us. It's for others. And God has gifted every single one of you in here if you are a believer in Jesus Christ with some gift. And therefore, you need to figure out what that gift is if you don't know and then be using it for other people, for the benefit of others. And so that's why Paul can proclaim this thing because God gave it to him to use for others. So second, what is the stewardship? Verse 26, it's the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. It's a mystery. Well, if it's a mystery, how do I proclaim it? Well, really, it was a mystery. The mystery is, he calls it, Christ in you. The hope of glory. The Jews missed it. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you're a teacher of Israel and you should know this stuff. 
way back in the beginning with Abraham, he told, God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And over and over and over again, he told the nation of Israel that he was going to send a Messiah who would change things. Told Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there's going to come a time when I'm going to put a new heart in you, take away your heart of stone. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'm going to give you the Spirit to dwell in you. This mystery which was hidden, veiled, maybe vague, but still there, is now very clearly evident through the death and resurrection of Christ. Our proclamation is the God of the universe desires to dwell in you. That's the mystery. Christ in you. The hope of glory. If God's going to take the time, the energy, the effort, pay the price to dwell in us, the promise is, as we've read two weeks ago, is that He will raise us up again just like He raised Christ. So yeah, there's a price for servanthood. It's suffering, but there's also a glory in servanthood. We can look to the future and see and be confident in the fact that one day we will be changed. Because of the present reality, the present ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives now. The God of the universe dwells in us, this body. And that is the proclamation that we have as servants. We no longer have to go to the temple to meet God. We are the temple of God. This body right here, God dwells in us. We can meet Him. We do meet Him here as we gather together. And that really is good news. Some people have said, if only Jesus were still here, if I could just touch Him, things would be better. But He says, no, it's to your benefit that I go away. Think about it for a second. If Jesus was still here and the Holy Spirit had not come, how often do you think He'd get around to Christ Community Church to be our head, to be our guide, to be our leader? You think He'd make it once a year? There's a lot of churches in North Carolina, much less the United States, much less the world. Once every five years, once every ten years, would He, would he come by to impart some wisdom and Say, okay, I'm in charge, y'all. I'll see you you next generation. Mason, maybe I'll see you when you're 40 or 50. I've got some other churches to go deal with. Right? No, it was good for him to go away so that the Holy Spirit could come and dwell in us. Right? And when when we proclaim that, when we do what we've been asked to do, then that's a glimpse of heaven to the world. When we're properly stewarding what God has given us. So how do we, how do, we do it? How do we proclaim that? Because you may say, well, I'm not Paul. I'm not writing letters to churches. I'm not a preacher. I'm not an evangelist. How do I do it? Look at verse 28. We proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man. But see, I'm not a teacher. What's interesting is, in the majority of uses of those two terms in the New Testament, admonishing and teaching, 
It's something that the entire church is responsible for. Not just the pastors, not elders, not deacons. The individual people in the church. Those two words Paul and other writers use to say this is your responsibility. Romans 15, he says, I trust that you're able to admonish one another. He's not talking to the leaders. He's talking to the whole church. Just a couple pages over in Colossians chapter 3, he says the same thing. Teaching and admonishing is the job for everybody. He's not talking just to the leaders. He's talking to the whole church. Your job is to teach and admonish. One kind of a positive, one a negative term. Teaching, imparting those truths. Do you know and are you able to say to your brothers and sisters in Christ the truth of the gospel? Hey, you need to be keeping your mind on this. Can I remind you of the goodness of God? Can I remind you of grace? Are you spending time with your brothers and sisters in Christ teaching them the truths of the gospel? That requires, number one, that you know what those are. Now, we're not talking about standing up in front of people and get everybody in rows and having a Sunday school class necessarily. But just day-to-day relationship, are you willing to teach and encourage and remind people about the truths of the gospel? Admonishing is a word that means to turn someone away from a wrong direction. Do you know people well enough? Are you involved in their lives to know when they're getting off course? You can say, hey, wait a minute, turn around and come back. And fully half of the uses of that word in the New Testament are towards believers in general, not towards specific leaders. You should have the skills to be able to admonish a brother and sister. We should not be like Cain and say, I'm not my brother's keeper. It's not my responsibility. It is your responsibility. If you're part of the body of Christ, it is your responsibility to teach and admonish one another. You can't put that off on someone else. Well, someone else take care of that. That's your job. Paul gives a really a beautiful picture of that in his, his letter to the Thessalonians. He's not talking there about standing up in front of a congregation and teaching them truths. He says, I was like a nursing mother to her baby to you. I was like a father teaching his children to you. The picture he paints in those first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians is a man who is intimately acquainted with the people that he's dealing with and he loves them and he cares for them and he's built relationships. Sure, Paul stood up like this with people maybe in rows or not and taught, but most of his teaching, most of his admonishing was in relationship. You read through his letters and he cares for and longs for those people and spends time with them. Going from house to house, encouraging families, encouraging people. And that's our job as servants. That's our job as members of the body of Christ to do that for one another. And so the challenge is, will you be a faithful servant? Will you sacrifice what's dear to you for the sake of someone else? Will you equip yourself so that you know what the proclamation is? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And will you get to know people in the body well enough that you can remind them of that, encourage them in that? To not think outside the box. 
We're called to be servants. We're called to follow Christ's example of being a servant, of being willing to lay down our lives or lay down our time or lay down our money or lay down what gives us pleasure or lay down physical comfort for the sake of someone else so that they might know the truth that we know, that they might be able to rejoice in the truth that we can rejoice in, that God loved us so much that He died for us and then chose to come and dwell in us that we may have hope. So would you this week begin to think how you can be a faithful servant to those around you? Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for uh, this morning and we thank you for um, the truth of the gospel that you dwell in us that you have reconciled us through the death of your Son, that we might have life and, as Jesus said, have it abundantly. So, God, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, that as they go through these doors this week into the world, that you would remind us that you have called us to be servants. You've called us to be ministers of the gospel with the gifts that you've given us, not trying to be someone else that we're not, Remind us to use our gifts well. Show us, God, where we are selfishly holding on to things that you would choose for us to let go, that we might serve. And through your Spirit, show us where we are still not equipped and how we can be better equipped to clearly and plainly articulate the truth of the gospel. For your glory and for this body, good and for the sake of those who don't know you yet. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.